0: Let's pray as we come to read from God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God of the living. Thank you that you are a God of love, a God of great power. And Lord, as we read your word and as I speak, I pray you would speak through me. I pray your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and minds. You would be glorified, you would be lifted high. And in our hearts, we would love you more deeply and more wonderfully than ever before. Come and do that to your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. What is the most important command of God? What is the most important command of God? This is surely a crucially important question. And in the passage we're about to read in Matthew 22, a lawyer comes and asks Jesus this very question. And so we're going to see how Jesus would answer that question. What is the most important command of God? So we've been going through a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're going to read Matthew 22, verses 34 to 46. It should appear on the screen behind me. um, But please open your Bibles if you've got them. Matthew 22, 34 to 46. When the Pharisees heard... That Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. It's amazing, isn't it? God even uses his opponents... his purposes. We've been reading Matthew 22, which is a chapter where the Pharisees who oppose Jesus, who want to kill Jesus, keep asking him questions. And every time Jesus responds with a brilliant answer. And here we have such a critical piece of teaching in the Gospels. What is the great and first commandment? We only have this teaching in Matthew's Gospel because the Pharisees are firing questions at him. So God is using the Pharisees in order to teach us 2,000 years later. We're so grateful to the opponents of Jesus for these questions because we get to hear Jesus' wonderful, wonderful teaching. And so Jesus tells us in this passage, in verses 37 to 40, the two greatest commandments of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. My first point this morning from this passage is we fall short of that. We fall short of following those two commandments. We're going to talk in greater depth about what it means to love God with everything we are. To love him with our heart, soul and mind. But the truth is every single one of us in this room right now, if we're honest with ourselves, thinks, I haven't followed that commandment. I've fallen short of loving God with everything that I am. Even the most zealous Christian in the room would confess that actually they haven't loved God with everything. We're going to talk about what it means to love others, love your neighbours as yourself, but all of us if we're honest with ourselves, know that we haven't done that one either. None of us have truly loved others as we love ourselves. All of us fall short of those two commandments. Even before we've unpacked what they mean, we know that we have fallen short of obeying those commandments. Now, in my life, I've spoken to a number of atheists and agnostics who've said to me, Duncan, I'm a decent person. I'm a good person. If God does exist, when I meet him, I'll explain to him that I just wasn't sure whether he existed or not. And he'll know that I'm a decent person, a good person. He'll be like, that's fine, that's okay, come into heaven. Have you ever heard that one? Agnostics often share that with me. Militant atheists tend not to say that, actually. But agnostics, who aren't quite sure what's true, do often say, I'm an okay person, I'm a good person. It'll be all right when I stand before God. But here, in this passage... God, in human flesh, God, in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son, explains that the most important command, the first command, the great commandment, is to love God with everything. And then he says to love others as yourself. And then he says the law and the prophets depend upon these two commandments. Another way of putting that is this. Living a good life in God's eyes depends first upon loving him with everything, and secondly, upon loving others as yourselves. Everything that a good life entails depends upon those two things. I don't know about you, but in my life, I want everything I do to be about loving God and loving others. And if I can live that life, then that would be a perfect life. But I know that I haven't done that. I know that I've fallen short of that. And so whether you're a Christian, whether you're agnostic, or you're an atheist, you're so welcome here this morning. But every single one of us ought to read those verses and say, I just fall short. I need forgiveness. I need mercy. I'm in trouble. If those are the two most important commandments, I am in trouble. I need a saviour. That's our first response to these verses. I need a saviour. The good news of Christianity isn't, you're a decent person, you'll be okay. No, the good news of Christianity is, you've fallen short of following even these two commandments. But we have a saviour in Jesus Christ. We all messed up We've just the first commandment. Every single one of us, how can we be forgiven? Well, the answer is the cross of Christ. Jesus died upon the cross. He bore our punishment. He took our lack of love towards God and our lack of love towards others. And he bore those things in his body upon the cross. He took our sin upon himself so that we might be forgiven. So that all who believe in Christ might have their lack of love forgiven. And so the first appropriate response to these verses, this great commandment of Christ is to run to the cross for forgiveness. Run to the cross of Christ and receive forgiveness. You have fallen short, but mercy and forgiveness is available in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him, believe in him, trust in him, throw yourself upon his mercy this morning. This is called the schoolmaster use of the law, by the way. There's various different ways that Christians use the law. And this way is called the schoolmaster use of the law. We read the law in the Old Testament. We read the commandments of Jesus in these verses. And it's like the schoolmaster saying, this is the standard you need to reach. This is the standard of goodness. If you're going to be a pupil in this school, this is the commandments that you will follow. And so the schoolmaster use of the law says, oh, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short. It reveals that I haven't fulfilled all of the law. I need a savior, and so it drives us to Christ for mercy. So one way of reading the Old Testament or reading commandments in the Old Testament is to read it like like it's the schoolmaster speaking to you and saying, "This is the standard," and you go, "I've fallen short. I need Jesus. I need Him to die for me." Some of you, for the first time, some of you for the hundredth time, to run to Christ for forgiveness, but having received mercy, having received the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who dwells within the hearts of every Christian, having received salvation uh, by faith in Christ, Christians can read these verses a second way. And this is the second way we ought to read them. My hope, my desire is with the help of the Holy Spirit to live out these commandments from this moment on. We're always going to mess up and we're never going to be perfect. But if you're a Christian, you're saying, firstly, I fall short. I need the mercy of Jesus. And secondly, it is my heart's desire to follow these commands, to live these commandments out day by day. And so my second point is this. Loving God is, according to Christ, the most important thing we can do. Loving God, according to Jesus, is the most important thing we can do. And Christ calls us in these verses to love the Lord with all that we are, with everything that we are, with our hearts, with our minds, with our souls. And that word for soul could also be translated breath or could be translated as life. So Jesus is saying, love the Lord with all your heart. Love the Lord with all your mind. Love the Lord with all your breath. Love the Lord with all of your life. Love God with everything. That is the first and great commandment. It's clear from Christ's words that we are commanded to love God inwardly and passionately with our affections. The love of God is to be felt in the heart. It is to be experienced in the soul. It is to be expressed in our mind. We are to love God inwardly passionately, affectionately. Now, you may respond to that by saying, well, how can I control my inward affection? The heart does what it wants. I love what I want. And in one sense, you're kind of right. You cannot obey this command in your own strength. You can't. You need the Holy Spirit. To come and change your heart, to change your loves. And that's what he does when he comes. When the Holy Spirit comes to a person, he changes you. He gives you a new love, a new love for Jesus. You love what he's done for you on the cross. You love that he rose from the grave. You love that he ascended into heaven. And you love who he is. You love his compassion and his kindness and his care. You love his power. The Holy Spirit comes and changes your heart and changes what you love. You stop loving the things of your old life and the sin and you start loving Jesus. The Holy Spirit takes a heart of stone and turns it into beating flesh, throbbing with love to God. If our first response is to run to Christ for mercy, then our second must be to pray for the Holy Spirit's help and transformation. Lord, I want to love you. I want to love you. Holy Spirit, change me. Give me greater love. Let me take a step forward in loving you more. Holy Spirit, change my heart. I need you, Holy Spirit. Open yourselves up and say, Holy Spirit, pour water on my dry, loveless soul. Light a fire in the cold cavern which is my heart. I need you, Holy Spirit. Help me love God with everything that I am. So to obey this command is in one sense impossible without the Holy Spirit. You can't can't obey this command without the Holy Spirit. And yet, we must partner with the Holy Spirit in our lives. We must partner with the Holy Spirit to fuel our inward affections. If love for God is a fire, then there's something we can do to pour fuel on our hearts that we would love God more. I want to encourage us this morning to partner with the Holy Spirit To read or listen to stories of God's goodness. And I mean biblical stories. Open up your Bibles and see the glories and goodness of God. I mean biographies from church history. Open up and see what God has done in the past. I'm talking about testimonies from friends and family members and people in this church. Why don't you overcopy coffee say to someone, hey, tell me something of God's goodness in your life. And hopefully they'll share something and fuel the heart, your love for God in your heart as you listen to these great stories. Pump your soul full of reminders of the good things God has done and use that as fuel to love him. Do you know, when we love a person, we find out some things about them. And we go, wow, that's great. I really love this person. And then you find out something else about them and you go, oh, maybe I don't love them so much as I did initially. Well, that's not quite how it should be, but that's how it is, isn't it? We find out some things we like and some things. But with God, everything you'll discover about him is glorious and wonderful. So fill your mind with things of God and stories in order that your heart would be fueled to love him more and more. I want to encourage you to draw close to God in prayer. That's the place where your love and your heart will be fueled. Meet with him in the secret place. Draw close to him. Share your cares and concerns with him. And as he patiently listens to you, he will enliven your heart to love him more. Don't just speak to him, but wait for him to speak also. Open your Bibles and read the word because whenever you read this word, God speaks. For the Holy Spirit is the author of this word. So draw close to God in prayer. Cast your cares upon him in a spiritual sense. Lay your head on God's shoulder and hear from him and speak to him and your love will grow. Can I encourage you to worship God? Remind yourself of all God's glorious attributes and declare them in prayer prayer and in song. I loved our time of worship this morning, just prayers from all over the place of God's goodness, praising him, declaring love for him. We we ought to be like that, not just here in this room, but when we're at home as well in the secret place, praising. Thank you, God, you're so wonderful. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Lord, I declare that you are eternal. I declare that you are loving. I declare that you are powerful. And as we worship him in prayer, and maybe stick on a CD and some worship and sing praise to him as well, our hearts will be moved to love him more and more. I'm talking by yourself, but also why don't you grab others and say, hey, I just just want to spend half an hour with you praising God together. Do you want to come round and pray? That would be a wonderful thing to do because in all these disciplines, coals are piled into our hearts for the spirit to set ablaze that our inward passions and love towards God should not dwindle but grow. So we are called to love God passionately and inwardly. We're also, according to Jesus, to love God with our mind. Loving God means applying our brains and getting to know him better. God has given you your mind and it ought to be used for its most glorious purpose, which is to learn things of God. You can do amazing things with your brain. Humans are amazing. And some of you can do some phenomenal things. There's some people who are good at maths. There are some people who are really creative and artistic. There's loads of gifts in the room. God's given us our minds. And they're all different. But the most glorious thing you can do with your mind is apply it to learn about who God is. I'll say it again. Study the Bible. Read it with hunger to learn more about who God is. Reflect upon what you read. Don't just read it and throw it aside and go, I've done it for today. But meditate on what you've read. Enjoy the truths that you find in God's word. I haven't said this from the pulpit for a long time. Read a good theology book. Switch off the TV. Stop filling your mind with rubbish and fill it with good theology. Good theology doesn't make you dull or boring, um, in which case you think that I'm dull or boring. Good theology Excites your heart as you read, as you fill your mind. It excites you to worship and love God more. And if you want, if you're going, I don't know what to read, then ask me for a recommendation. After, I'd love a queue of people. I'll give each person a different book to read, and we'll go. Fill your mind. Apply your mind to who God is. Love God with all of your mind. And so, there might be some of us here who have a passionate love for God, but we need that passion to be shaped by truth. And so we love God with our minds and our hearts. We inwardly are passionate for him and we shape the way we love him with truth by applying our minds. Love of God is not just an inward emotion or feeling. It's not just using our brains, but it's action. We know this instinctively as Christians, because the love of Christ was shown most clearly in his death upon the cross. He did something. He loved us with his deeds. And so every Christian knows that it's not just passion in our inside or brain that's filled with knowledge. No, love for God must be with action. We love with our lives and with our strength. Now, notice the difference Between on the next slide, between Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, which Jesus is quoting from, and Matthew 22, verse 37. So in Deuteronomy, uh, the Bible says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. But in Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, there are two possible reasons for the differences between those two verses. The first, reason, possible reason, is that this is a deliberate change by Jesus to make the Pharisees focus on internal transformation rather than outward deeds. Do you know the Pharisees had a big, big problem, didn't they? They loved to be seen by others doing good things. And so maybe Jesus has just slightly altered the verse that he's quoting from in order to say, hey, focus on your inward transformation. So he doesn't mention might, and he talks about heart and mind. But I think, I think the reason these two verses are different is largely to do with the difference between Hebrew and Greek languages and cultures. It's nice to know English, as Di was saying earlier. It's fun to know Hebrew and Greek as well. The Jews considered the heart to con- include your mind. So when the Jews wrote in the Old Testament about the heart, they're including thoughts as well, which might seem quite foreign to us. We separate these two things, heart and mind. But for the Jews, the heart included everything that you loved, but also everything that you thought. They didn't have a separation between those things. Even as I'm presenting this, I'm pointing to my head. Like that represents thoughts. But Jews would go, everything I'm thinking with my heart. That's how they talk. That's how they understood the body. And so when you read heart in the Old Testament, include mind in that as well. So when the Holy Spirit transforms your heart, the Jews are talking about your mind as well being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whereas the Greeks very much saw a separation between heart and mind. The Greeks were thinkers, they liked the logic. The Athenians in Greece liked to think that they were the best thinkers in all the world. Great, great debaters. So they separated passion and mind and said, no, we think with logic. And we, we feel with our heart. So that, so you can see why Jesus talks about heart and mind in the New Testament when it's written in, in Greek. Because he's, he's, he's taking that Jewish word and, and just making sure that we know it includes our mind as well in the Old Testament. Concerning the word soul, the Jews had a very clear distinction between our inward life and our outer life. So the Jews love to think about the inward soul, our inner being. And our outward might, we use our strength outwardly. Whereas the Greeks, when when you translate this word for soul in the Greek, you can translate it breath or body. And so I I think in the Greek, this word soul includes what's inward and also our life outwardly, it's all of our lives. So do you see, actually, I think this is just a translation language cultural thing. The verses actually say the same thing. Um, And maybe I shouldn't have even highlighted, but I, I love the detail of these two verses. So I think that this command of God includes heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to love God with our lives, with our breath, with everything that we are. And so I want to challenge you. Maybe you're a great thinker or you're really passionate on the inside, but are you loving God with all of your might? Are you loving God indeed? Are you making an active effort to help people? Because when you help others, when you use your strength, that is a way of loving God. Are you loving others with your strength in order to love God? Are you giving your all to your work and your labour? Are you working as if for the Lord and not for men? Are you giving your strength to God? That's worship. That's a way of loving God is to work as hard as you can for God's glory. In worship, are you using your might and your strength and not just your voices to worship God? Are you raising hands, clapping, dancing, are you bowing before God in worship? Because all these are biblical instructions for how we ought to worship. Now I'm a I'm an English man. I'm not naturally a dancer. I'll have you know, although I can do the worm. I, I won't do that in church, but I I can dance. I'm not, but I'm not a natural dancer. But I'm trying to step out more and express my love for God, not just with my voice and not just in my heart. The heart is the most important thing in worship, no doubt, but. With my body as well. I want to encourage you to try and be a bit more—is flamboyant the right word? I know a bit more flamboyant in worship. Can we be more flamboyant worshippers in this church? Loving God with our bodies as well as with our voices and our hearts. So, Jesus says the the first commandment, the great commandment, is to love God with everything. Go to Christ for mercy and forgiveness because you have not led that fulfilled that command. Ask the Holy Spirit to change your inside and resolve to love God with your heart, soul, mind and strength in every way you can. Nothing is more important. Nothing is more important. The second most important commandment is like the first. It's all about love. The first commandment is all about love, isn't it? Loving God. But the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. Do you know our society talks quite a lot about loving ourselves about self care and then if you've got something left over then you can care for others but when you read the bible god in the bible is much it kind of assumes that we already love ourselves and talks far more about loving others now there may be one or two exceptions but i think that we need to hear god's command to love others far more than we need to hear the world's encouragement to love ourselves. It's right to look after ourselves, to care for ourselves in that sense, but don't do it at the expense of loving others because you'll do yourself a disservice and you'll be disobeying the commands of God. Care for yourself so that you might love others. And and this is what Jesus says, love your neighbour as yourself. We live in a very individualised society and as Christians I think we ought to fight against individualism. We should seek to be a family in the church and we should love the people around us as ourselves that is a huge command isn't it love your neighbor with the same effort the same love and the same attention that you love yourself that's the command of jesus christ that's the second greatest commandment according to jesus and so i want to bring a challenge and an encouragement from this command the challenge is this brothers and sisters we must use our time our words our deeds and our money to love others The Christian life ought not to be you, locked up, away from others, sheltered in our nice houses. I'm an introvert and sometimes I wish the Christian life could be just me reading theology books at home by myself. But that is not what Christ commands. That's not what we're called to. We're called to love others as we love ourselves. Now, loving others starts with family caring selflessly for the people closest to us, but it must not stop with just loving our family. I think Jesus used the word neighbour deliberately. The neighbour wasn't part of the family. The neighbour was, well, he tells the Good Samaritan story to tell us who our neighbour is. It could even be our enemies. Loving your neighbour means loving the people around us. I want to bring a big challenge. Brothers, sisters, you be the instigator of relationship because you want to obey Jesus in this command. You take the steps to get to know people. You take the steps to love people. You want to love others. You be the instigator of relationship because you want to love others as you love yourself. Now, I also want to bring an encouragement. I know people in this room who are giving huge efforts, caring for family members and friends. I hear the stories. I have the privilege of listening to people and God sees that love that you have shown to people around you. Well done. You're obeying the second greatest commandment. Keep going. Keep loving your neighbour. And as you love your neighbour, you love your God. I also very briefly want to commend a charity called Good Neighbours Fairroom. It's a charity for building relationships with people who are lonely. And maybe that's your first action this morning. If you're going, how can I love others better? Go and look up Good Neighbours that And if you if you sign up and give them your details, they'll connect you up with someone in this town who, who needs friendship, basically. And you can then go and give time to them. And that would be a wonderful way to love others as yourself. So know that you fall short of these commandments of God. Run to Jesus for mercy. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Love God with everything you are and love your neighbour as yourself. Everything depends upon these two commandments. All the law and all the prophets, everything you read in the Old Testament depends upon these two commandments of God. And that means that everything you do ought to also depend upon these two things. As I said earlier, this is how I want to live my life. That every thought, every word, every deed, everything about me would depend upon loving God with all that I am and loving others as myself. That's why I'm praying for myself out of these commandments. But I have thus far ignored verses 41 to 45, and I want to very briefly comment on those verses. So so I want us to see the supremacy of the Messiah in verses 41 to 45. The Pharisees have asked Jesus their questions hey, what about this woman who's been married seven times? Who's she going to be married to in the resurrection? And Jesus answers their question. God is the God of the living. There is no marriage in the resurrection. God God is the God of the living. They've asked him about what is the greatest command, the first and greatest commandment. They've asked him whether you should pay taxes to Caesar or not. The Pharisees have asked their questions and Jesus has answered them all perfectly and gloriously. But now Jesus asks his own question. Hey, you guys, you've asked your questions. Now it's time for my question. And his question addresses the most important question of all, which is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The Messiah, or the Christ, was the king all the Jews were waiting for. He would be a descendant of David and he would reign over Israel, defeating the enemies of Israel. In fact, God would make the enemies his footstool. So this king would sit on his throne and put his feet up upon the enemies who God has defeated through him. And he would reign on earth forever. So the Jews are waiting for the Christ. They're waiting for the Messiah. He's going to be a one. They're like, who is this person? When he comes, it's going to be amazing. Finally, King David's descendant would reign on the earth. But Jesus' question concerns Psalm 110, where David says this, The Lord, that is Yahweh, so God, the Lord God says to my Lord, and when he says my Lord, he's talking about the Messiah. If the Messiah is the descendant of David, then surely David is the higher authority. If, if the Messiah is the son of David, then David is the higher authority. He's the first in the family. And yet David, in Psalm 110, when he speaks about the Messiah, calls him my Lord. That's the wrong way around. That's not how culture works when Jesus is speaking. It should be the children who go to their fathers and grandfathers and pay them homage and give them respect. They should honour their elders. But here in this Psalm 110, David, King David, says My Lord. The Messiah is my Lord, and Yahweh, the Lord God, speaks to my Lord, the Messiah, in Psalm 110. David is saying that the Messiah is superior to him in this psalm. Why is the Messiah superior to David? Well, because actually David wasn't first. The Messiah was first because Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is God. And he has always been and will always be. He is the Lord. He is David's Lord. And of course, all the while that Jesus is teaching them these things, he's using the same Greek word over and over again. He's using the word kurios, which means Lord. So Jesus says in this passage that I've just read to you, love the kurios, your God, with all your heart. With all your soul and with all your mind. And then he says, the curios says to my curios, quoting from Psalm 110. So here's what Jesus is really saying I am the Messiah. I am superior to David, I am David's kurios, I am David's Lord, and actually I've just told you to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. So what I'm really saying is you ought to love me with everything that you are, because I am God, I am curious. I'm using the same word over and over, peppering the word Lord throughout what I'm saying in order to reveal to you Pharisees that I am God, I am the Lord, I am David's Lord, I am the Lord, I am the one who ought to receive your great, great love. And so that's what we do in this church. We're called Christ Church Pharaoh because we love Jesus with everything that we are. We love him with all our hearts. We love him with all our minds. We love him with all our souls. We love him with all our strengths. Or at least we're trying to do that because we know that he's glorious. He is the saviour. He is the Lord. He is the king. And no one dared to question him after that. The questioning is over. Jesus has answered the questions. And no one can answer the question that he asks. Jesus Christ is the descendant of David, but he is also the Lord of David. The King who will reign forever. And the Lord, Jesus Christ, God himself, teaches us how to live. Love God with everything. Everything. Love him with everything. Inward and outward and mind and heart. Love him with everything. And love your neighbour as yourself. Can we stand? And can I ask the band to come to the front? I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father... Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is my Lord. And he is the Lord, the King who will reign forever and ever. I thank you for even these Pharisees who oppose Jesus because the questions they ask have taught us so much about what is true. Lord, firstly, we want to cry to you for forgiveness and mercy. We want to confess that we have not loved you with all that we are and we have not loved others as ourselves. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross that we might be forgiven. We throw ourselves upon your mercy once again. Forgive us and fill us with the Holy Spirit once more that we might partner with him and love God with everything that we are. Lord, I wanna pray for cold hearts in the room. Lord, stir those hearts, pour out the Holy Spirit on those hearts, flood those hearts with passion and love for God inwardly, Lord God. I want to pray for minds which are not full of the truth of who you are, Lord. Fill our minds with truth. May we apply ourselves to know more about you, Lord God. I want to pray for lives which are not given to you in love, deeds which are not worshipping you. Lord, may we not love in word, but love in deed. Lord, we want to live for you with all of our strength, with all of our might, with all of our breath, with all of our life. And so would you come, Holy Spirit, and change us? while we resolve at the same time to partner with the Holy Spirit in all these things. Lord, we want to love our neighbours. We want to love one another in this church, but we want to love the people in the world around us. So Lord, send us out. May we love with the love that we have received. May we love others as we love ourselves with the same attention and dedication to love others. Come and do this in our hearts. And Lord, we want to worship you. You are the Messiah. You are the King. You are the Lord. We love you so, so much, Lord Jesus. We want to love you with all that we are. Pray this in Jesus' name.